Our final paper in this um, panel will be given by Zoe Trod, um, who is professor in the Department of American and Canadian Studies at Nottingham. Um, her areas of expertise are civil rights, um, the civil rights movement, the Civil War, um, 19th century American slavery. She has co-authored and co-edited a phenomenal seven books. I don't know how you get the time of the energy. <laughs> um, and this paper comes from a new project uh, on images of Frederick Douglass. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to draw from this book that I'm working on at the moment. It's actually quoted from Celeste um, and with John Stauffer, uh, coming out to mark the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment. And it does collect all photographs of Frederick Douglass. It proves he was the most photographed American, actually, of the 19th century. Uh, previously, people had claimed that this title belonged to Walt Whitman, uh, with 128 photographs. Uh, and then Abraham Lincoln, with 130 and then General Custer with 155. But we believe we have over 160 photographs of Douglas, so making him the century's most photograph, photographed American by the time of his death in 1895. And actually, frustratingly, the only figures standing between Douglas and being the most photographed figure in the world in the 19th century are members of the British royal family. <laughs> the uh, Prince and the Princess of Wales had over 600 photographs taken each. What this means, though, of course, is that even as uh, a black man in America was considered subhuman by many white Americans, Douglas becomes widely photographed, visually famous, uh, immediately recognizable by millions, a real public face of America at a time when a lot of whites understood America as a white man's nation. And this was actually Douglas's intention. He was at the very center of the nation's transformation from being textual to being visual in the years that led up to the Civil War, and he was trying to use that transformation to achieve another one, to achieve uh, a nation of uh, freedom out of a nation of legalized slavery, and then after the Civil War, to transform the nation from one of segregation to one of equality. And more so than any other 19th century American, uh, he understood the implications of his country's just new fascination with the camera. He recognized the democratic importance of this new technology. He praised what he called the multitude, variety, perfection, cheapness of its pictures in 1861. He celebrated its mass availability. He said in 1864, the servant girl can now see a likeness of herself such as noble ladies and even royalty itself could not purchase 50 years ago. He also recognized its specific importance to combating white racism. He knew, as James Russell Lowell put it, in 1845, that the very look and bearing of Douglas are an irresistible logic against the oppression of his race. And Douglas shared this opinion. He knew he was the embodiment of his cause, that his very look in these photographs argued against racial oppression. It argued for black equality. So he very quickly began to commission and to self-direct these portraits of himself. He was trying to out-citizen white citizens to be more dignified, more elegant, more represented, more displayed, more seen than any of the ordinary white citizens who were embracing photographic portraits as a way to express and to establish middle-class identity. He was telling the country that African Americans were every bit as worthy of citizenship as whites. And I actually do really think that this moment when Douglas uh, becomes aware of the possibilities of imagery, his attempt to really control, to circulate his own image, marks the beginning of mass media in America. This very astute 
public figure, um, this first black celebrity of America, recognizing the potential for manipulating public opinion. And as far as I can tell, it was a successful manipulation. Uh, while searching for Douglas in these uh, museum storage units and the archives of historical societies, uh, universities, auction houses, private collections, I found him in the old photograph albums of unknown white, sometimes black, citizens from the late 19th century. He just sort of sits there alongside their family members, alongside white public figures. It reveals he was actually a cultural icon even in his own lifetime. He was uh, collected and displayed and gazed upon uh, as a work of art, as a representative American. Just to share some of the photographs, this is the very first image of Douglas. Can you bring the lights down slightly? <coughs> it's a daguerreotype from 1844. This is actually the last. This is a deathbed photograph, um, likely taken the day after his death in February 1895. And then in between there are 50 years of Douglas, uh, including 10 daguerreotypes, whereas previously historians thought that only six existed. This is one of the sort of newly uncovered ones. And the archive also includes five ambrotypes. Previously, historians thought that only one existed. Uh, this is one of the newly unearthed ones. And it also includes images by uh, one woman photographer, Lydia Cadwell. She took three photographs of Douglas in Chicago in 1876, including this one. And images by three African-American photographers. Uh, James Presley Ball took two photographs uh, in Cincinnati in 1867, including this one. Cornelius Batty, he took three photographs in New York in 1894, including this one. And James Reed, he took seven photographs of Douglas in New Bedford in 1894, uh, including this one of Douglas and his grandson, Joseph. Probably one thing that's already obvious to you um, is just how rarely Douglas was photographed with other people. So with the exception of these photographs by Reed of Douglas and Joseph, Douglas was never photographed with any of his children or grandchildren. He was also never photographed with his first wife, Anna, uh, and only a few times with his second wife, Helen, including this photograph from 1884. It's Douglas and Helen during their wedding trip. They're posing at Niagara Falls. It's unusual, too, it's one of the only two examples of a possible keepsake sort of souvenir photograph that Douglas had taken. He rarely used the camera to record moments for memory, to try and visualize family relationships, uh, friendships, any sort of personal sentimental uh, tool was not useful to him with the camera. He was using it instead to create uh, a public, professional, political image. He was using it as a tool of reform. It was a piece of his argument for black freedom and equality and citizenship. Because in commissioning and, and directing all these portraits, he was really carefully shaping his own visual identity. Just as we know, of course, that Douglas was concerned with written versions of his public self, we can see too that he was engaged in experimenting with this visual language. He was photographing himself as well as writing himself into existence. He was, in a way, creating the first black American public persona, the first public version of black American masculinity and identity. Just as a couple quick examples of um, how he was doing this, how he was inventing and reinventing a black public persona to suit particular moments, 
Before the war, abolitionist Douglas in these images was repeatedly photographed with clenched fists. He's often in the act, it seems, of fighting. This is one example from 1858. Another example, this is actually a copy print from a lost daguerreotype. I'm not sure if you can see, but he has a clenched fist down at the bottom. After emancipation, though, the fist does unclench. It's as though at least one fight, at least, is over. Here's another example of Douglas's sort of post-war unclenched fist. As another quite clear shift in representation, before the war, the majority of the photographs of Douglas have him staring quite challengingly back at the viewer. It's a bold choice, actually, in a moment when photographers would encourage subjects to stare off to the side. After the Civil War, though, uh, the majority of Douglas' photographs feature him in that sort of classic statesman pose, as though he's engaged in thoughtful contemplation. He has his head turned in that three-quarter pose rather than the face-on posture. You can actually see, I think, Douglas the fighter, the fugitive, transformed into Douglas the great American, the statesman, the, the citizen, the community leader. He's, in a way, enacting what he called um, in visual... Uh, he's enacting in visual form what he called in his second autobiography a transition from bondage to freedom with all these pictures. And he's also countering demeaning caricatures of African Americans, visual caricatures in magazines. This is one example where Puck magazine is depicting Douglas as an ape. Here's another of many examples of racist cartooning. This is from 1859. And Douglas himself explained of of this problem of visual representation in his newspaper, Negroes can never have impartial portraits at the hands of white artists. It seems next to impossible for white men to take likenesses of black men without most grossly exaggerating their distinctive features. So he's battling with photography racist caricatures like this one. It has what Douglas himself saw as the sort of stereotypically racist features present in most portraits of African Americans by white artists. The kind of representations he protested throughout his whole life. Um, in 1870, he was still protesting that we colored men often see ourselves described and painted as monkeys. We think it is a great piece of good fortune to find an exception to this general rule. So confronting this, he believed that photography was the most accurate, truth-telling medium available. That even if you put a camera in the hands of a racist white southerner, they could not help but portray an African-American man accurately. As a related problem, he was also encountering the tendency to depict, in a way, the extreme opposite. So rather than exaggerating some sort of stereotypical <coughs> black features, illustrators also tried to make Douglas look more white, perhaps as a way to introduce him legibly, acceptably to their readers. So in several early lithographs, including this one, this sort of elongated his face and his nose in particular. This is the frontispiece to the Irish edition of the narrative. It was an image that Douglas denounced. You can see the same sort of elongation erasure of his blackness in this newspaper in 1846. With photographs, though, Douglas was able to retake control. He believed that the photograph was a tool of aesthetic revision, as well as social and political change that he could convert audiences to the injustices of slavery via his exemplary portraiture. So the shock value here is that such a man was held as chattel. He was challenging even some kind of mainstream views here. Um, uh, an article in the New York Times in 1862 
proclaimed that any interest in the Negro could not arise from his beauty. No writer on aesthetics has ever pretended to find either beauty or grace in the shambling African. And then, as well, Douglas was encountering a whole other set of images. Um, and these were the images of exposure, of uh, available, uh, wounded, exposed black bodies circulated by abolitionists before and during the war as an argument for abolition, the whipped back of the slave Gordon in this famous photograph, the numerous illustrations of branded and uh, auctioned and half-naked slave bodies. Countering this, Douglas set out to make himself as unavailable as possible, choosing, uh, for example, never to smile in his images, except for two very, very late photographs. This is one of them. But he believed for 50 years, as he explained, that a kindly and amiable expression should never characterize the face of a fugitive slave or of a black leader, that to have a sort of broad, inviting, communicative smile would undercut dignity. So we have just 50 years of this very solemn, severe, unsmiling, very inscrutable Frederick Douglass, images that transformed the black body from being an emblem of passive suffering to being a symbol of just solemn, uh, heroic, <coughs> stoic manhood. He was really pushing the boundaries here of possibility for black masculinity. He was liberating himself from that emasculating appeal, am I not a man and a brother? This famous image that circulated throughout the 19th century. He actually observed of another photograph of another African-American friend and colleague, which was an image that he liked, Whatever may be the prejudices of those who may look upon it, they will be compelled to admit that he is a man. And Douglas's own portraits, I guess, perform that same work of compelling the viewer to recognize that he is a man. He's sort of answering, in a way, that question of that famous icon, am I not a man, with this resounding yes. Connected to the choice to be unsmiling, he also made the decision to deviate from the usual 19th century studio practice which was to have very elaborate backdrops, painted scenes of you know, ornate columns and landscapes, props of flowers and vases and books. With just one exception, um, Douglas's photographs are very stripped down, so they have no material objects uh, that might distract from his very statuesque, you know, monumental physical form, his exceptional selfhood. He gives us no clues, there are no symbolic props, he doesn't hold one of his own books. You know, he doesn't stand beneath a painted scene of the plantation where he'd been enslaved. There's nothing like that. He, again, is making himself inaccessible. He's hidden in plain sight. And again, this is in contrast to those proliferating images of uh, black bodies whipped or branded or lynched or kneeling half naked. His, his stark, minimalist sort of composition recreates the black male body as an enigmatic persona. It's something inaccessible, something inscrutable. This is the exception to his practice of simplicity. And again, it's one of the very last photos of Douglas ever taken. It's probably the last before the deathbed photograph. It's also the second of the two smiling photographs, and it's the one where he finally chooses a prop. He chooses this ornate uh, lion's head chair. And it's a telling decision at a moment where he's in ill health, He's probably feeling his own mortality. Um, he's aware of his nickname as the Lion of Anacostia, which is his neighborhood in Washington, D.C. 
And he's choosing at this moment to cement that image, to cement the image of his aging, leonine mythology, Douglas the lion, the mythic strength, even in the face of the reality of his increasing physical vulnerability, his old age. It's an image, I think, uh, of Douglas finally acknowledging his own mythology, um, smiling, and saying goodbye. This process uh, of Douglas countering racist depictions, countering the overexposure, the visual availability of black bodies, by offering, until the very last months of his life, only his unsmiling face, only his own self, no props, no symbols. What this amounts to is really, I think, the first great <coughs> visual battle in America's history. It's a battle over the public image of African Americans. This battle, uh, these photographs, also had a huge sort of visual legacy in ways that I actually didn't know until starting to gather all these photographs together and starting to find the lost ones. The majority of 20th and 21st century sort of visual reimaginings of Douglas are actually indebted to his own strategies of self-representation. It's clear to me now that artists and, and the 50 muralists who have put him in their murals across the US, the 13 sculptors who have installed full-size statues of him, they had brief access to this uh, archive, to these individual photographs somehow, in private collections, in old copies of black newspapers, in library archives. They were working from specific photographs. I want to just tell you briefly which of these photographs had the most impact <laughs> in the sort of visual legacy, and just offer you some potential reasons why. This is the most reprinted, copied, adapted, used photograph by George Warren, it's from 1876. It appeared in Crisis magazine, um, it appeared on the cover of Ebony. It was the starting point for this statue of Douglas. Um, it was the basis for the depiction of Douglas that's on the ceiling of the New York County Courthouse. In 2008, it appeared on an Obama campaign button, and that same year it was the basis for this design of the DC Quarter featuring Douglas. A close second, is this photograph by John Kent from 1883. The horizontally flipped version of that photograph um, was the basis for this lithograph by Pablo O'Higgins, who was a labor activist, a communist artist. It was also the basis for the USPS stamp, the official stamp that was issued of Douglas in 1967. The frequency of these two images in particular are partly explained by their inclusion as the two frontispieces to Life and Times. Um, the first, <coughs> published in 1881, used a version you can see of the Warren photograph. The second, uh, published in 1892, used, as you can see, a version of the Kent photograph. So basically, when artists start drawing or sculpting Douglas, quite simply, two of the most available images they can work from are in these published uh, autobiographies, the frontispieces. But even when you factor that in, the availability of these frontispieces, the frontispiece to my bondage from 1855 was just as available, presumably, and it rarely appears as the basis <coughs> for artwork. And when you start going through this afterlife, this visual afterlife of Douglas in print culture and magazines and newspapers, it becomes really, really stark just how rarely the pre-1870s Douglas actually appears. Life magazine did put young Douglas uh, on its cover in 1968, and 
early-ish. Douglas is also here. He's on the cover of the South Florida Times. It's a newspaper that serves a historically black community in Florida. Uh, he's one of the ancestors who were speaking through Obama in 2008. You can just see him on the left of Obama. But these are sort of relatively rare exceptions. Uh, to, just to give USPS its credit, after using that very familiar uh, common photograph of older Douglas in 1967, this was the second stamp I had issued. And it used a photograph from 1864, which I have confirmed with the USPS, although they took his pointing finger and they pointed upwards for reasons that actually nobody could explain to me at USPS. <laughs> but again, the, this is pretty rare. Much more uh, common um, is to go with old Douglas in this sort of uh, print culture of, of magazines and stamps. <coughs> the situation with Douglas statues is actually almost as repetitive. Of the 13 full-length Douglas statues that exist, 10 work with post-1870s Douglas. There are only three Douglas statues that have reached any earlier than the 1870s for their inspiration. This is actually the most recent of these three. Uh, it's a statue in New York at 110th Street, based on a photograph from 1857. It was just announced, though, um, that probably there's going to be a fourth younger Douglas statue that will exist next year at Westchester University. This is an early design by the artist. And you can see the face, at least, uh, is going to be based on several 1840s daguerreotypes we have, including this one from the mid-1840s. But far more common uh, in statuary, as I mentioned, is to work with the Douglas of the 1880s, the 1890s, including this recent statue uh, at the side entrance to the New York Historical Society. It seems to be probably based on the Kent photograph and in fact, so relentless is this focus on the sort of bearded head of Douglas that in Baltimore you can visit a sculpture that's in the harbour that just focuses on the power of that lion head. It's actually a six foot tall, six foot wide statue of just Douglas's head that you can sort of walk around. It was briefly exciting uh, when the Talbot County Courthouse people in Maryland considered this model for a statue of Douglas. But... The committee, of course, eventually chose this one. So again, rejecting younger Douglas for older Douglas. There are a couple more variations when you reach um, painters and muralists, rather than illustrators <laughs> and uh, sculptors. For example, the African-American artist Charles White actually transitioned throughout his career from statesman Douglas to younger Douglas, and he does so in the 1960s. So he started by working with the very frequently used Warren photograph in 1940, the detail from, from uh, that mural. <coughs> a couple years later, he'd moved on to the Kent photograph. By the early 1950s, um, he was still using photographs from the 1880s. But by the 1960s, he had started to produce himself more political, civil rights-themed artwork, and he's also using photographs of Douglas from around sort of 1860. For example, turning this photograph from 1863 into an etching, using this image uh, from 1857 for his drawing of 1967. And in fact, beyond Charles White, from the 1960s onwards, um, artists began to branch out more and more into this Douglas archive, um, you know, using a sort of younger pre-war Douglas for their artwork, including Ben Shan with this drawing from 1965. As for murals, the New Bedford mural does have older Douglas at its center, 
But it also uses two other versions of Douglas elsewhere. You can see younger Douglas is on either side of the central figure. One of them is based on the daguerreotype from around 1852, and the other is based on a daguerreotype from around 1848. Meanwhile, in Boston, the muralists who produced this image um, used a photograph of Douglas from around 1863, and the muralists who produced this image for Anacostia uh, in 2011 went back to the 1857 photograph. While an artist in Detroit used a photograph from around 1845. This is a close-up detail of that. So basically my point is that during and after the 1960s in murals and artwork especially, we do start to see more of this younger, lesser-known Douglas. The question, though, for me at least, does still remain, in spite of these relatively rare examples, why do so few artists turn to the younger Douglas for their depictions? There are a lot of answers to this. I just want to give you a couple... Partly it's because the older Douglas lends himself more easily to a couple purposes. The first is making him a biblical figure, so a kind of bearded Moses, a sort of wise Abraham. This better inserts him into these black history tableaus, including versions of the Last Supper. Uh, Douglas here is taking the place of St. Peter, who's often depicted as white-haired, bearded in traditional Last Supper paintings. This is another of uh, many examples of black history tableaus of the Last Supper. So Douglas here, the only grey hair on the table. Here's one that's actually inside a church. Um, again, Douglas, a bearded patriarch, sitting amongst these other saints and apostles of black history. Another useful aspect, I think, of the older bearded Douglas is that he lends himself more easily to inspiration of history paintings. Uh, he figures as a symbol of the older generation, a patriarch of the race, a sort of father or grandfather to today's youth. This is one of many examples. This is a much earlier work. Um, this time it's a mural in Ohio, painted in 1933, titled Frederick Douglass Inspiring the Youth of the Negro Race. But interestingly, they haven't chosen to depict him as a youth just a little bit older than the youth who, it, who he's supposed to be inspiring. Instead, they've depicted him as the wise man of the 1880s and 1890s. So in this sort of painting, his life is a success story. He's the epitome of the American self-made man. He offers inspirational, symbolic power. Connected to this, um, several murals also find his patriarch image to be more useful because they want to position him at the base of a family tree. So here and in several of these family tree murals, he's at the bottom of the trunk later figures, including Malcolm X, and actually also Obama, who was added just recently, seem to spring out from Douglas. He's the black seed of this mural's title. He's the lowest and the first on the tree. He's the father of them all. Uh, over in this one again, he's at the base of the tree, along with Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Du Bois. These are the ancestral roots, as the title of the mural explains. And then finally, in addition to you know, the usefulness of Douglas as biblical figure, as historical inspiration figure, as racial ancestor, there's also a politics to choosing the younger, historically more radical Douglas for a mural or a statue or a painting. Most often the bearded wise man Douglas appears in murals that are trying to put him alongside more moderate reform figures. 
anyone from Nelson Mandela to Martin Luther King to Gandhi. It's as though the Douglas of the 1880s, the DC insider, the elder statesman who's part of the hierarchy, who's been appointed by successive presidents to roles like Marshal of the District of Columbia, US Minister to Haiti. It's as though this Douglas is the safer, more inclusive Douglas, the one who belongs on the murals in white neighborhoods, the one who has cross-racial appeal. So this is a mural dominated really by Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Douglas appears in his bearded form. Uh, you can see him in the detail blown up large at the bottom. Whereas artists opt for young Douglas when they want to put him alongside figures like Malcolm X to make him part of a radical heritage. These are often murals in historically black neighborhoods, um, sometimes those that have an ongoing radical presence, maybe New Panther groups, for example. So here you see artists painting from photographs of Douglas from his late 1850s era. This is when he's advocating defensive violence. Uh, he's advocating slaves taking up arms against slave catchers. He's goateed, he's young, he's around the same age as Malcolm X was, at the height of his influence in the early to mid-1960s. And the politics, I think, behind choosing this Douglas era for uh, images like this one, which is in South Central LA, is pretty clear. It's a call to the Malcolm side of Douglas, the Douglas that Malcolm himself liked to quote and remember, the radical Douglas of the 1850s, who advocated armed rebellion. Just as one last example uh, of this sort of radical appropriation of Douglas photographs, I want to end by showing you probably my favorite uh, Douglas after image. And it's Leroy Foster's quite experimental mural from 1972. It's in Detroit. Uh, Foster was actually a Black Panther. And he's interpreting Douglas, I think, as a sort of ancestor to the Panther version of Black masculinity, <coughs> which the Panthers were so good at representing in photographs and artwork. It's one such photograph of uh, Huey Newton, the Panther leader. Foster's Douglas is a kind of 19th century Huey. He's Douglas reimagined for the era of the Panthers. It's a mural that explores all of these ambiguities that surround Douglas's multiple visual identities. So as well as the super heroic, muscled Douglas in the foreground, um, where the face, if not the body, is based on the younger daguerreotypes, there's also a close-up in the corner of Douglas the Elder Statesman, 1880s Douglas, and then a third Douglas in the middle, with a bearded John Brown standing behind him with hands resting on his shoulders. So Foster's portraying these two ages of Douglas. There's no obvious bridge between Douglas's younger and older selves, between this muscular body of one Douglas to the bodiless head of another. And of course, these two ages are those between which all artists apparently have to choose and they're painting or drawing or sculpting Douglas, they're roughly pre and post Civil War Douglas. The presence of John Brown, his friend and associate, the radical white abolitionist, who's putting his hands on Douglas's shoulders, tells us the mural is actually about a turning point at that historical moment, uh, when the Civil War is firmly on the horizon, when Douglas himself had to choose between two versions of himself, and perhaps forever shaping how he would appear in murals or statues or paintings. In fact, the mural depicts the meeting of Douglas and Brown in 1859. Uh, John Brown tried to persuade Douglas to join him at Harper's Ferry on a raid planned for later that year, and Douglas refused. Uh, he believed it was a steel trap out of which they could not escape alive. And Douglas wanted instead to live, to work for 
the end of slavery another way. Several playwrights have depicted this decision by Douglas as a pretty major turning point in his own self-perception. Even as Harper's Ferry itself becomes a turning point for North-South relations in the build-up to war, and Foster is now depicting it as a choice between two versions of himself, the freedom fighter on the left side of the mural versus the elder statesman on the right. And John Brown it seems like he's talking to Douglas. He's maybe painting a picture for that third pensive Douglas in the center. He's describing maybe the kind of man we see on the left who breaks slavery's shackles by force. But we know that Douglas himself turned away from that vision, that this symbolically muscled fighting body was not put into action at Harper's Ferry any more than it was ever revealed for any camera. And then instead, he chose the persona of the bearded Douglas in the mural's background. He chose to become instead that wise man head of the later Douglas photographs that would form so much of the uh, visual afterlife in the 20th century. 